welcome to my dad's podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. I have running through my mind right now that scene from Zoolander when Will Ferrell's character Mugatu kidnaps Zoolander, who's a fashion model played by Ben Stiller, if you haven't had the pleasure of seeing that movie, and Mugatu tries to brainwash him into killing the Prime Minister of Malaysia. It's a pretty outlandish plot line, but among other things, Mugatu's trying to convince Zoolander of the benefits of child labor. Hey there, Derek. My name is Lil Cletus. I'm just a regular kid who wants you to know the real truth about child labor laws, okay? Okay. They're silly and outdated. In the good old days, kids as young as five could work as they please, from textile factories to iron smelts. Yesterday, hooray! In the good old days, kids were free to work in factories and iron smelts. What changed? Well, part of that story has to do with the Commerce Clause. I wrote a review a while back of a book called The Evangelical Origins of the Living Constitution. It's published by Harvard University Press and is written by a political science professor named John Compton. Super interesting book, and it makes a counterintuitive claim that the moral concerns of evangelical Christians in the late 19th and early 20th centuries laid the groundwork for the rise of the judicial philosophy of living constitutionalism, or the idea that we should interpret various clauses in the Constitution in light of contemporary social mores or economic conditions, and not just according to how they were originally understood. I say this is counterintuitive because white evangelicals today are politically associated with the modern conservative coalition forged during the Reagan administration. One of the stated goals of the Reagan administration was to commit the government and the federal courts to an originalist approach to constitutional interpretation. That coalition has been strained and reconfigured a bit under President Trump, but evangelical support for originalism seems to be as strong as ever. We saw that most recently with support for the nomination of Justice Amy Barrett, who describes her judicial philosophy as originalist. So a book with the title The Evangelical Origins of the Living Constitution is provocative and intriguing. Compton argues that the moral reform movements spearheaded by Christians at the turn of the 20th century laid the groundwork for the judicial philosophy of the living constitution and ultimately paved the way for the New Deal and for the rise of the administrative state after World War II. Christian reformers, he shows, came to regard as sinful many activities or forms of property that the American founders tolerated, in some cases even promoted, things like gambling, drinking, and sending children out into the field or the mill to work. These reformers sought to use national legislative power to make such things illegal. They wanted to quash gambling and state lotteries, prohibit alcohol, and ban child labor, among other goals. But the Constitution seemed to stand in their way. They finally accomplished that second goal, prohibiting alcohol with the 18th Amendment, only to have it repealed by the 21st Amendment 14 years later. But they pursued the other two goals through national legislation, ostensibly passed under Congress's enumerated power to regulate commerce. Those laws were challenged. The cases went to the Supreme Court, and the debates on the court in the early 20th century then set the terms of debate about the living Constitution and paved the way for the New Deal and much else. Now, before we get to those cases, let me give you a roadmap to where we are going. We talked last episode about the landmark case of Gibbons v. Ogden in 1824, where Chief Justice John Marshall argued for a broad rather than narrow interpretation of what interstate commerce entails. 
He says in that case that commerce is undoubtedly trade or traffic, but more broadly he says it could mean intercourse or the dealings and communication between people of different states. And in this instance, that would include navigation on the Hudson River connecting New Jersey and New York. What Marshall left hanging was a question about the limits of Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. He wrote, quote, It is not intended to say that these words comprehend that commerce which is completely internal, which is carried on between man and a man in a state, or between different parts of the same state, and which does not extend to or affect other states. Such a power would be inconvenient and is certainly unnecessary. A few questions. Is there any kind of commercial activity that doesn't at some point extend to or affect other states? Is calling the power to regulate intrastate commerce inconvenient and unnecessary the same as calling it unconstitutional? And what about activities that aren't themselves commerce but nonetheless affect commerce? Can they be regulated? And here's the roadmap. The turn of the century Supreme Court made a hard distinction between things that are and are not commercial in nature. Congress could regulate interstate commerce, including banning interstate commerce in certain items, but Congress couldn't regulate non-commercial activities, such as manufacturing or labor, that go on within the borders of one state, even though the activities are closely connected to commerce and maybe affect commerce. So, for example, Congress could not suppress a manufacturing monopoly or ban interstate commerce in products made with certain labor practices, including child labor the regulation of manufacturing and labor would be powers left to the states. But that all changes in the 1930s, and the watershed case is National Labor Relations Board versus Jones and Laughlin Steel in 1937. We'll talk about that case more next week, but the upshot of the case is that the National Labor Relations Board could regulate issues involving labor at local manufacturing plants, because labor relations at those plants, even if they're not part of interstate commerce, nonetheless affect interstate commerce. And soon, Congress is regulating all sorts of non-commercial activities that affect interstate commerce. In a case in 1942 called Wickard v. Filburn, the Supreme Court upheld Congress's authority to put quotas on the amount of wheat farmers could grow on their own property. The idea was to stabilize prices by regulating the supply of wheat. Roscoe Filburn grows in excess of the wheat quota, feeds some of it to his family and his animals, and never intends to sell the wheat. And here's a key line from that decision. Even if Filburn's, quote, activity be local, though it may not be regarded as commerce, it may still, whatever its nature, be reached by Congress if it exerts a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce. In other words, Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce extends to regulating non-commercial activity that takes place entirely within the borders of a state, and in this case entirely within the borders of a private family farmstead, because the activity, if enough people engaged in it, would have an effect on interstate commerce. Between 1942 and 1995, there are no cases then where the Supreme Court limits Congress's regulatory power under the Commerce Clause. The first pushback we get is from the Rehnquist Court in the 1990s when it said Congress had exceeded its power under the Commerce Clause when it tried to ban handguns in school zones and make gender-motivated violence a federal crime. And then, of course, more recently, when the court said that the individual mandate of the Affordable Care Act was not a legitimate exercise of Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. So that's where we're going, and it's important to keep in mind when we talk about these cases today that the court's approach before 1937 was very different than it is after 1937, and arguably it's very different after 1995 than it was before 1995. Let's take a quick look now at the Supreme Court's Commerce Clause jurisprudence before 1937 with three different cases, United States v. E.C. Knight in 1895, 
Champion versus Ames in 1903, and Hammer versus Dagenhart in 1918, starting with the E.C. Knight case. The Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 made it a federal crime to restrain interstate commerce by means of any contract, combination, or conspiracy, and gave the federal government the authority to break up monopolies. And when the American Sugar Refining Company purchased E.C. Knight and three other sugar refining businesses in Philadelphia, they gained control over 98% of the sugar refining capacity in the United States. President Grover Cleveland wanted to use the Sherman Antitrust Act to prevent the acquisition from taking place, and the United States sued E.C. Knight under the Antitrust Act. And in this case, the Supreme Court made a hard distinction between manufacturing and commerce. As Chief Justice Melville Fuller writes in the case, quote, commerce succeeds to manufacture and is not part of it. The power to regulate commerce is the power to prescribe the rule by which commerce shall be governed and is a power independent of the power to suppress monopoly. Congress can regulate commerce, including monopolies in commerce, but it can't regulate manufacturing, according to Fuller. One might, of course, argue that manufacturing is pretty closely connected with commerce and it has a huge effect on interstate commerce. And to that argument, Fuller offers this warning, quote, it will be perceived how far-reaching the proposition is that the power of dealing with a monopoly directly may be exercised by the general government wherever interstate or international commerce may ultimately be affected. The regulation of commerce, he writes, applies to the subjects of commerce and not to matters of internal police. Contracts to buy, sell, or exchange goods to be transported among the several states, the transportation and its instrumentalities, and articles bought, sold, or exchanged for the purposes of such transit among the states, or put in the way of transit, may be regulated. But this is because they form part of interstate trade or commerce. But manufacturing, according to Fuller, is not part of interstate commerce or trade. It couldn't be regulated as such. If states want to regulate manufacturing, they can do that. But Congress's power to regulate commerce is pretty tightly connected here to interstate trade and transportation and to the whole infrastructure that facilitates that trade and transportation. But Congress's power ends there. It doesn't extend to things that are considered non-commercial in nature, and in this case, to manufacturing. Champion versus Ames in 1903 presents a follow-up question to E.C. Knight, and it brings us back to the evangelical origins of the living Constitution. The case deals with the Federal Lottery Act of 1895. Congress had prohibited the movement of lottery tickets in interstate commerce, and Charles Champion was arrested for violating that act. Constitutionally, the question was whether Congress had the authority under the Commerce Clause to pass the act at all. Writing for a divided court, John Marshall Harlan, who's named after but not related to the great Chief Justice, affirmed Congress's authority to ban lottery tickets from interstate commerce, reminding his colleagues that, quote, the power of Congress to regulate commerce among the states is plenary, is complete in itself, and is subject to no limitations except such may be found in the Constitution. We should hesitate, he said, before adjudging that an evil of such appalling character as lotteries carried on through interstate commerce cannot be met and crushed by the only power competent to that end. That only power here seems to be congressional power, national power. But if Congress has the power competent to the end of crushing the appalling evil of lotteries, couldn't it just ban lotteries outright, nationally? Just prohibit commerce and lotteries everywhere in the nation, even if it takes place within the borders of a state, because it all affects interstate commerce and lotteries eventually. Harlan anticipates the question and says simply, it will be time enough to consider the constitutionality of such legislation when we must do so. Melville Fuller, the author of the E.C. Knight opinion, wrote a dissent in Champion v. Ames that was joined by four others. 
In E.C. Knight, you recall, he drew a hard distinction between manufacturing and commerce. In his dissent here in Champion versus Ames, he drew a hard distinction between what he called the police power of the states and Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. We've traditionally understood states to have what we call the general police powers, a power to legislate for the health, safety, and morals of the community. Suppressing lotteries because gambling is a great moral evil seemed to Fuller to be one of those powers reserved to the states, traditionally held by and exercised by state governments. As Fuller wrote in his dissent, the power of the state to impose restraints and burdens on persons and property in conservation and promotion of the public health, good order, and prosperity is a power originally and always belonging to the states, not surrendered by them to the general government, nor directly restrained by the Constitution of the United States. And the suppression of lotteries as a harmful business falls within this power commonly called of police. Banning stuff that you think is morally harmful to the community, alcohol, lotteries, or whatever else, is a power reserved to the states, according to Fuller. But Fuller's no longer in the winning coalition on the Supreme Court here. And if it's true, as the majority opinion argued, that Congress is the only power competent to crush the appalling evil of lotteries, wouldn't Congress also be empowered to exclude from interstate commerce anything it thought was morally harmful, not just lottery tickets? Harlan said there'd be plenty of time to consider that question when it arose, and it did in Hammer v. Dagenhart in 1918. That case involves the Federal Child Labor Act of 1916, which prohibited from interstate commerce products made in any mill or factory where children between the ages of 14 and 16 were employed for more than eight hours a day or more than six days a week. Dagenhart and his two sons worked long hours in a North Carolina cotton mill, and they sued. The question for the court, if Congress can ban interstate commerce and lottery tickets because lotteries are evil— Can it ban interstate commerce and products made in factories that employ children in the conditions spelled out in the legislation because those labor practices are evil? In Hammer v. Dagenhart, the court says no, and it draws a distinction between this case and the lottery tickets case. Champion v. Ames is purely about commerce. Congress banned the interstate commerce in a specific item, in that case lottery tickets, because the item was deemed harmful. In the Child Labor Act, though, Congress doesn't regulate any particular item because that item is harmful. It doesn't ban interstate commerce in cotton shirts, for example. It bans only those cotton shirts made in cotton factories that employ children. And so this is clearly a regulation not of commerce but of labor, according to the court. It's an attempt to standardize the ages at which children may be employed in mining and manufacturing within the states themselves. As the court says, the goods shipped are themselves harmless. And so we're back here to a hard distinction between what commerce is and what it isn't. Over interstate transportation or its incidents, the regulatory power of Congress is ample, the court argues in Hammer v. Dagenhart, but the production of articles intended for interstate commerce is a matter of local regulation. If it were otherwise, all manufacture intended for interstate shipment would be brought under federal control to the practical exclusion of the authority of the states, a result certainly not contemplated by the framers of the Constitution when they vested in Congress the authority to regulate commerce among the states, according to the court here. Now, whether Hammer v. Dagenhart is consistent with Champion v. Ames is a question I'll leave you to ponder, but one takeaway is this. The push to enact national legislation to regulate lotteries and child labor and other moral vices during this era put pressure on those traditional distinctions between what can and cannot be regulated under the Commerce Clause. The watershed moment I mentioned was in 1937. The next year, in 1938, Congress passed the Fair Labor Standards Act, again regulating labor conditions within a state, including what it called oppressive child labor. When that act was challenged just a few years later, the court overturned its own precedent from Hammer v. Dagenhart and upheld the ban on child labor and much else. 
It was clear by that point that the court's post-1937 Commerce Clause jurisprudence would look very different than it had at the turn of the century. 